We want to welcome all of our listeners and viewers to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in tech, business, and media. And today joining us is Andre Swanson, who is Chief Executive Officer at True Optic. Let's jump in and get to know Andre. Andre, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have you here. And for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about True Optic and a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. So True Optic provides, and I, I try to say this in layman's terms because sometimes I get too caught up in my own <laughs> definitions here. So True Optic provides really the data and audience identity reconciliation for media companies and advertisers across what we call the connected media or streaming media ecosystem. So what that means is if people want to do targeted advertising using branded data like um, you know, auto intent or political party or household income from leading companies, the trans unions, the comm scores, all the biggest companies, Truroptic serves as kind of the data spine that matches that data to smart televisions and gaming consoles and smart speakers and, and really all the new fast-growing devices across the household. Or if a big media company or brand has their CRM data and proprietary insight that they have on their consumers and their customers, and they want to, in an anonymous, privacy-compliant, secure way, leverage that for targeted advertising across those mediums, Shuroptic really serves as a background company to work with those enterprises to make that, that happen in a scalable, accurate, privacy-compliant way. That's cool. I'd love to learn more about how that all started, but I'd love to know how you started. Tell us about where, you know, where you grew up and tell us a little bit about sort of life growing up and where that, where that was. Yeah. I mean, I'm just a first generation American, you know, son of West Indian parents that grew up in the Bronx. (laughs) I mean, and that's a big part of, you know, who I am and my life experience and, and how I look about things that defines a lot of who I am. I'm a kid that, you know, academics were instilled, ingrained, forced into me as being kind of critical from very young age fortunate enough to have the opportunity to go to some of the best prep schools and private schools in the country. And many, many levels later has uh, got me to where I'm at today. How did you start on your career path? So originally, you know, in high school, I always wanted to be a sports agent. You guys remember that show Arliss on HBO back in like the 90s? Uh, I mean, I wanted to be this big mega sports agent. and I need a path for that in many instances was either going to law school and being a lawyer, or you had a lot of people that may have been like financial advisors and more like business management. And those were kind of two of the paths. It didn't happen for me in that I ended up by the time, you know, I was 21, 22 years old, I didn't want to go to law school anymore. (laughs) The notion of being in school for another three years just seemed absurd to me when you're in that age. And, you know, I ran track at the University of Connecticut, pledged alpha at UConn also. And so, you know, as a junior 21 years old, you know, just my whole mindset changed uh, uh, on a lot of things. I kind of burnt out from track, was injured on and off again, just didn't want to go through the rehab. But, you know, how do I pay for school? How do I do certain certain things? And uh, I was a pretty popular kid, knew, knew a bunch of people, and, uh, and I knew the golden rule. If you got the basketball team to come out and you got attractive girls to come out, the girls' basketball team at UConn to come to your party and you get your frat brothers, everybody else is going to come. I started promoting parties and then I started promoting step shows and then I started promoting concerts 
And then next thing you know, I was, you know, 23 years old and had a bunch of money saved up and decided, you know, I'm going to open my own venue, my own nightclub. You know, why make all this money for the bar owners and the venue owners between the rental fee percentage of their ticket sales, the bar, which I wasn't getting money of. And, I, and I've always had this mentality of whenever possible, doing things on your own. And I've never wanted to, to kind of be the person reliant on other people for what I, the moves that I make or what I take home. And that's just always been a mentality of mine. And so, you know, I opened my first nightclub when I was 23 years old. I mean, at the time, it was the biggest club in the state of Connecticut and dealt with a lot of issues with that. So this mindset of kind of entrepreneurial spirit, media, entertainment, sports type was always uh, around who I am. You know, at the same time as opening the nightclub, you know, I was taking my Series Seven licenses and my Series 66 and getting all my financial certifications so I could be do private wealth management and spend some time on the investment banking end. And so even though I had my entrepreneurial kind of more media entertainment stuff, I still was as my mom would say, I still had a real job because money didn't matter. That wasn't a real job to her, doing nightclubs or doing parties and events. So, you know, that also exposed me to insight around how capital is raised, how wealthy individuals diversify their assets, not just from simple equities and, and bonds, portfolios and real estate, but alternative investments from angel investing to art collecting to any of that things. And these are things that you hear about, but it's very different when you're in a team and you're learning how to incorporate these things in terms of a financial plan or a business plan. So, you know, what, what helped me a lot, I think, was the ability to be kind of hands-on on the ground floor of owning venues and local markets and understanding how I had to use insight to advertise to people, whether it was an insert in the local newspaper, which I did all the way through until about 20, 2007. It's probably the last time I advertised in a newspaper, mm. but I did it for years before then to local radio. So I remember the shift to when I started buying digital for my radio rep, right? Banner ads on the radio's website and, and other things. And I started seeing, I had to be one of the first people to start advertising on Facebook for local events and, and some of these other things. And I, and I saw this transition in the way I needed as a local small business owner to spend my marketing dollars to get a positive return on investment from kind of traditional to more digital. And at the same time, I also saw a huge influx of capital coming into alternative investments. So having that vantage point is one of the things that gave me confidence to want to start my own tech startup and go after capital and why what has become chiropractic, what the original reason for it was, I knew that there was an opportunity in terms of what we called at the time, not even connected TV, we called it IPTV. And we didn't call streaming audio, streaming audio was streaming radio, right? I mean, that right. just was the thing. I just knew that that's where all the growth was going to be. I understood that data and insight and targeting and attribution, and these were the things that were going to be driving decisions that people make. And I understood that there was opportunities to raise capital because I saw, quite frankly, some of my clients investing in some of the stupidest ideas I've ever seen, right? And, and I'm like shifting a million dollars out of somewhere to cash for them to get, go invest in a company that, oh my God, I can't believe they put a million dollars in that. And so that kind of ego is saying, well, if these people can do it, why can't I? And we can get into the whole other conversation as to why can't I or why can't people that look like me or why is it difficult in many cases, but... I turned a long story into as short as I can, but that was kind of how 
yeah, this all originally came about, you know? Yeah. No, th- thank you for that. That was good to hear. And, you know, sometimes you hear people say that, you know, being a, the CEO can be, can be lonely sometimes because you are, you know, the buck stops with you, right? All decisions or most decisions go through you. But I want to flip that around. I mean, what, what do you love about being a CEO? I love what some people consider the pressure of it. I think that's what makes it not boring, quite frankly. I'm not afraid to be wrong. You know what I mean? I think a lot of the reason why a lot of people feel a lot of pressure is because it's unnerving the thought that you can make a a decision and it could be the wrong one. It has impact not only on you, but your investors, your employees. I talked about this recently on Bloomberg. I said, you know, I'm very cognizant that not many people that have look like me have had maybe the opportunity that I've had to lead a venture back company in such a fast growing space and a lot of the notoriety. But I also know, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that if I fail, it's going to be even harder for the next black founder to get the capital or do the stuff. And if I succeed, my belief is that it, it will be easier to do so. So that is something that is another reason why I like being the CEO, because I like having I don't look at it as a burden. I like, I almost look at it as an honor to yeah. have that, that ability. That, right. I think it's a big deal. Um, it's one of the things that drives me to just, you know, money obviously is a motivating factor for everybody. Ego, I think to be a, a startup CEO, you have to have a relatively big ego. doesn't mean you can't be humble. doesn't mean you're not cognizant of your own shortcomings or you can't learn and don't always improve. I think I'm a better leader than I was six months ago or definitely six years ago, but you have to have a pretty big ego, I think, to withstand the rejection or the failure or the the hurdles that will present. So going back to the original question, what I like buying being seeing, you know, all the stuff that people typically don't like. <laughs> I literally <laughs> embrace that stuff. Um and I think it's it's so Ooh. motivating and it just keeps you on your toes. I learn stuff every day. I make mistakes every day, but it's the ability to kind of adapt to that that I think differentiates kind of everybody that wants to be a leader and the people that are. And I'm not saying I'm the best at it, but I, I, I think I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so. I, I gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, last week I had a little bit of a role reversal where I was on a, on a podcast and, and someone was interviewing me and we got on the sort of topic of growing up as a black male. Right. And, and we all know what's, what's going on in our country right now, especially what's happened over the last couple of months. And one of the stories that that I spoke about was that when I turned 18 and got my driver's license, the first thing my dad did was sit me down and teach me how to act when a police officer pulled me over. Right. And, you know, I've watched or I read an open letter that you've written. I watched an interview that you've done. I noticed you have similar experiences too, Andre. And I was just wondering if you can touch on that for a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think that these are conversations everybody's having, right? Or forced yeah. to have. Mine was, I was younger. It wasn't uh, originally tied to driving. It was, you know, seventh grade. I was in a program in fifth and sixth grade called Prep for Prep in New York City, which it's a program you tested into and applied for mostly, almost predominantly minority students from you know public schools in the, the five boroughs. So I'm in this program that, you know, Prep for Prep that allowed you to study for two years to then be placed in private schools. And it was extremely rigorous. And I remember, you know, I don't remember if it was the night before or, you know, the days leading up to, but before Mm -hmm. I started off to go to private school, we lived in the Bronx. I had to take, you know, 15 minute walk 
45 to 50 minute subway ride, you know, as a seventh grader. So what are you in seventh grade, 12 years old or so to go down to Upper East Side, most affluent part or one of the most affluent parts in New York City to attend, you know, it's all boy private school. And I remember my dad just talking about if I'm approached by, you know, the police on the subway. I'd never, I'd never taken the subway by, by myself in my life, right? Until I had to go take it halfway across New York City to go to school every day. Or if I'm walking home, how do I, you know, how do I react? Let them know that I'm, you know, on my way back from school or stuff like that. Or you played sports after. So sometimes you're 12 yeah. years old and you coming home at nine o'clock at night if you're right. in the way game. And so that was the first time I had that conversation. When I turned 17 and I got my license, obviously I had it again and it was more around, you know, if you get pulled over and how to react. But what I talk about in the letter is that I'd already seen that, right? Mm-hmm. It, you'd re- I'd already seen those interactions with my dad. And so I felt like I was trained on how to react before I was even had to be told. And I think that's the same. I saw a video online with a kid playing basketball in his driveway. I don't know if it's gone viral. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe like a 10-year-old kid, he's shooting hoops. And then as a, he sees a cop car coming down the street oh, yeah. and he hides behind the yeah. car. Saw that. And then when the cop leaves, he comes back out. Yeah. And, you know, the dad that shared it online just talked about how he hasn't had any conversation with his kid about about that. But children, they see what goes on. They have conversations with their friends. They mm-hmm. see the interactions that their parents have. They hear the news. They see the news. Social media has opened them up to things. Even when you're playing video games, some of the video games mm-hmm. I've played over the last couple of months in the home screen, you know, FIFA yeah. or NBA, my, mm-hmm. you know, nine-year-olds playing, it's talking about Black Lives Matter and the things we sport. So you can't not have these conversations with your children, whether you want to or not, or you think the time is right or not. It's so prevalent. I think as parents, we rather, you know, kind of have those conversations in the way where we can kind of control them and, and, and yeah. shape them. But for me, it's, there's so many personal experiences. I mean, I grew up quite frankly in it, and this is something, and I don't ever want to come off as like I'm an anti-police or cop bash or anything or not, because I'm not in any way, but I grew up pretty much as far as I can remember, more afraid of police officers than like, quote unquote, gangbangers or gang members, right? I've never walking home as a teenager in the Bronx had, you know, the Bloods and the Crips really weren't big earlier in the 90s, but later later on, maybe by college years, there's where they, they were. And in my own neighborhood in the Bronx, the, the Crips more so than anything. But even earlier in the 90s, I don't remember ever being messed with by Latin King or Zulu Nation Tribe or any of the different kind of gang activity that was that was around me if you kind of were doing your thing and you stayed and you you didn't you know you you weren't in the streets hanging out and you ignore people nine out of ten times no one was messed with you but you couldn't say that same thing growing up as a police officer with the police like just being outside just walking from the train station home or just driving your car so i grew up you know quite frankly much more afraid of having interaction with the police member than having quote unquote, the people that everybody tries to say are thugs or scary people messing with me. And so that's just been my life experience. Yeah. It's interesting, just the the subject of the talk, you know, I'm sure we could just talk about it all day, right? Because sometimes it's the dad and shouts to the moms out there that actually have to have the talk sometimes if if dad's not around. My mom had the talk with me, you know, and it was not because my dad didn't want to have the talk, but they had a lot of those personal moments with with my mom, you know, and, and, and sometimes moms are the one doing the talk too. So, yeah, you know, as a CEO, tell us about some thoughts you have about the industry on how 
you know, it can be a lot more inclusive today, maybe a little more diverse and, and really the aspects of sort of belonging, you know, as well, I think are, are really important. Can you share with us some of your thoughts, some of your experiences, your observations and your ideas on how the industry could be a, a lot more inclusive and diverse and, and welcome everyone? Yeah. And you know what? I should probably, you know, it's very effective when I'm talking about capabilities for my company or product or you always, I always, I always like groups of three. I feel like it's effective when you can make three points about something. And so I feel bad that I should have like a prepared, pre-prepared group of three. But, you know, listen, I think it starts much earlier than what we often talk about when we talk about diversity, inclusion and stuff like that. For me, the number one most important thing is educational opportunity. I think it's always been ingrained in me that education is the great equalizer. Now, we have other statistics to show that even with the same level of edu- education, certain people are paid less than other stuff. So uh, nothing is perfect, but I, I feel like education just opens up so much opportunities. And you know, you hear when people make excuses around inclusion or diversity, First excuse you always hear is about, you know, the qualified candidates, right? That's kind of the first excuse that people make. Um, I think in many instances, that's already an invalid excuse for certain positions in many respects. I do think there's areas like engineering where it is still a numbers game and there's, whether it's black or Hispanics or females and, and stuff like that, where there is not as much of a pool there. And I think that comes back to earlier in education. But I think, one, I think there needs to be more investments earlier in education and opportunity. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion for a company, one of those things can be like a tropic. We have a great relationship with Girls Who Code, and that's something that we want to actually expand. And, you know, our first ever guest, we opened a brand new multi-million dollar office in July. It's February, really, right before we had to shut it for COVID. But we moved into the building pre all the renovations being done in July. So not all of it was done, but, but our first guests were girls who code. And I got to be honest with you, the pride of one having, you know, 25, 30 girls come to our office and spend a full day and get coding insight from our team and talk with our operationals team. And so many of those girls were black and Hispanic and Muslim girls. And it was just so much more inclusive of anything I've ever seen. And I think we got, and my team probably got more from it than even maybe the girls did. Uh, and, and that's one opportunity. We've talked about more opportunities for internships for people, right? So what I've seen is when it's opportunities to get entry-level jobs, forget even the senior positions and diversity and senior levels, which is the other conversation. Mm-hmm. But in order to have people evolve up to these senior positions, there needs to be more opportunities at the ground floor. And so internships for college students is something that I think is a huge, huge opportunity to help get more of the the pool in. What I've heard from other companies in terms of diversity and inclusion, it's not even sometimes so much getting the talent, it's retaining, right? So people need to feel, we feel welcome. And so if we have investments in education that give more educational opportunity, that gives much more opportunity you know, a bigger talent pool of, of people, if we're allowing for more early opportunities for people to grow into careers. And then if there's more mentorship and retention of people, I think that those are three areas that, that I feel could be huge. The last one that I'll give, which isn't directly related, but I think it's different, is also where capital is going, it goes, right? So we have an extremely diverse company. 
and we don't have a director of diversity and inclusion or a chief diversity officer, it's so ingrained in our culture that we don't need one. And I'm not saying that to disparage companies that are putting the effort into having one or saying it's not an important position. But the reason they have to have one is because it is not native to them by default, right? It is not from the CEO down. It is not from the time they were started their company to where they are now with thousands of employees. So it's because it's not something that they, they naturally do or have always done. It is something they need to address with the position and specific initiatives. What I've found is when you talk, when you look at, you know, female founded companies, minority founded, founded companies, they are naturally just more diverse from the very beginning. And so I have employees of every race. I have international immigrant employees for, you know, more than half the companies, probably first time, first generation American, every sexual orientation. And I believe that it makes us stronger. I'm not doing it to check off any numbers or because I care about meeting anybody's expectations or quotas, I've literally been able to benefit from just unabashedly recruiting and hiring the best people that I've been able to, to get at the time. And that naturally has led me to a diverse company. You touched on a, a great point there and one that I, I certainly agree with in that, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, a lot of times we spend our time talking about the companies of today, what the companies of today need to do to catch up. And I think somewhere along the line gets lost is what about the companies of tomorrow that haven't even been born yet, right? And when you think about where VC money goes to these days, right? I think it's something like less than 10% goes to people of color, women, so on and so forth. And I, and I think, you know, your point about you didn't have to hire a chief of diversity because your company was, it was already ingrained in your company. And it's because your company, the CEO is, is a black man. And I just feel that the more people of color, the more women that we have that are founders of the company and get backed by venture capitalists, I think the better off we'll be in terms of changing that diversity and inclusion narrative. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, you know, I think, not to go off on a tangent talking about access to capital, yeah. but it is a big, it's a big issue, right? I think mm-hmm. I saw that 0.2% of venture capital for investments goes to black female founders. I mean, talk about the double whammy, right? right. So if you are black, I think it's 1%, right? Of all venture capital goes to black founders. And if you're female, I think it's 2% mm. or something like that, uh, 2 point something percent is the most recent statistics that I saw. And if you're a black female, it's 0.2%. So just, but if you look at the ones that have raised at least a certain amount of capital or got to A round, there's a much higher percentage of those companies that go to successful exit, right? So it's not a metric of that. It's a, a riskier investment for an investor. The metrics actually in the data that's available actually shows that it's a more sure investment, yeah. right? than the typical VC investment. And I think that's because it's so freaking impossible that it's already been so naturally weaned down to the best of the best of the best of the best. (laughs) That's why it's done so well. But I I think there's, there's so much opportunity. And it's one of the things that I look at the network that I had, right? So doing private wealth management at JP Morgan and having multiple extremely wealthy clients going to a prep school like the Hotchkiss School, one of the most prestigious boarding schools in the world, right? And then the network of people, you know, I, the, the black men CEOs and venture capital just for my one school is like a significant percentage of all of them, right? <laughs> that have had big exit 
execs or, or C-level execs at big, huge companies just from that one little school, right? Because of opportunity and how difficult it has been for me to raise capital and maybe in probably the ways that I, that I should have. I mean, we've raised, you know, like $16 million or, or so, which sounds to the average person like a lot of money, but relative to our space, how fast we've grown, our market penetration, our customers, our 100% client retention, like all these metrics, realistically, I don't know, maybe I would have raised 50 million or 100 million and mm. be in a different ball game. But some of the you know, larger VC funds, I remember five, six years ago when we started off, they wouldn't even take meetings with me, wow. right? Um, yeah. And look at a lot of these funds, a lot of them have not invested in one black founder ever, mm-hmm. ever, right? Or in 20 years, they've made 200 investment straights and not one of them. And then when I look at myself or I don't know if you guys know James Norman Piatley or Tristan Walker, who I went to high school with, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of his. Like, <laughs> like a lot of these guys, I'm sure, I'm not going to put words in their mouth. I'm sure a lot of these same funds wouldn't meet with them either, mm. right? It's not a unique thing. And it's never said that you don't take a meeting because it's a black founder. But I, you know, if we're in the space that's relevant, meetings are kind of a dime a dozen. Meeting doesn't even mean anything, right? right. And right. to get a meeting, and you look at your portfolio and you're like, you've never invested in one black company ever, like 200 investments straight. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't have to read between the lines. It is what it is. And so, you know, I'm not one to whine about things. I, I love, I don't want to say I love that. It's not good for the industry, but things like that are just added motivation for me. I love going in and seeing a company that, you know, I believe didn't give me an opportunity because maybe they don't give anybody like me an opportunity. And you know, taking clients from their portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Like I, that, you know, that so is that, that, ongoing that's motivation thing. for you then. That's, that's oh, yeah, I love motivation. it. I, I love it. I love it. You know, there are companies that, that I remember, you know, passed on us because, you know, we weren't far enough along or it wasn't a clear vision and then made other BS investments in our space with competing companies that weren't as far along as us that are already out of business, right? I can think of half a dozen examples of people that told me I, were, I was not far enough along yet made mm. earlier bets than where we were. And out of those half a dozen, probably four of them are out of business already. One of them, I was just hit up about buying. And I chuckled. I remember like laughing about it. Um, so yeah. Mm. Switching topics a, a, a little bit here. Obviously, CEO of company, also a parent. One question we love to ask every guest is, how do you manage it all? How do you juggle it all? Is there such thing as work-life balance? There is. There is. I would say what works well for me and is the chief client officer at Jiroptic is my wife, right? <laughs> She's been there since the beginning, right? Since, since 2014. So when I particularly, you know, we've grown the team significantly over the last couple of years and brought on additional, you know, really experienced execs that have exits from big media companies and tech companies. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been a big help. But we were such a small team early on. And I was doing so much travel. I mean, there was, you know, probably a year, I'd say 2017, 2018, I was, you know, San Francisco, LA, like every other week, right? Just pitching for investors, client meetings, speaking at conferences. Like I was never around, uh, mm-hmm. you know, every other week I was somewhere going to France for this event or Vegas for conferences. And it helps when you have a spouse who fully understands what you're doing. I think it would have been harder if... I was doing the same level of travel and I was still at like JP Morgan and she's working at a different company. And yeah, you know, it's important for work or you see the paycheck, but it's very different when you 
fully understand the importance of this client meeting or, yeah. or this meeting. So I think that has been helpful for me. I talked to you when we were just kind of talking offline, you know, sports is been a big thing for me both my wife and i ran track at uconn he went athlete she's better than i was but no don't tell her i said that um well, we should have aired on the podcast yeah, that's true that's true i guess it's out it's out no right worries. She, she already knows it yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's she's tired of hearing me speak she might she might she might she might i guess but but uh, but growing up for me sports was such a big part of my life basketball track and i can count on one hand how many athletic events my dad was able to come to in my life i mean i'm talking from traveling teams in middle school to captain varsity high school to d1 lsl university and then i transferred to uconn big east also like that and i think it's maybe five in my entire life mm. and it's not because he didn't care right he's that never missed a parent teacher meeting yeah. never missed you know stuff uh recital music recital stuff like that sports just weren't his thing <laughs> <laughs> one and i think he also wanted to like stress the importance of the other stuff and then just work was very important so for me when you talk about work-life balance you know i've got two kids i don't miss soccer like everybody knows like there's a soccer game wednesday or saturday like i'm there period it is a part of my thing i've missed maybe one or two ever in years and that was because i just had to be out of town so i think part of work-life balance is you just have to force some things to be critically important the other thing is, you know, I think I've sacrificed a lot of my personal social life, but my social life was through work, right? Mm -hmm. So going to industry mixers at CES or in, you know, a yacht party in the south of France, like, it's work, but it's it's very social at the so, same time. It's still really south of France. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, so I try to enjoy anything that is somewhat social work related. Yeah. And I forced to, in my count, like it's in my work calendar, blocked off, people see the whole schedule for the whole season, like athletic events or recitals and stuff. My wife's much better than I am about <laughs> with homework and stuff like that. Uh, not even because of time, I just don't have the patience. But yeah, I think it's it's teamwork with, with the spouse. I think it's just prioritization. And it's also one of the things that's just most important to me. Like one of the reasons why I like being, I guess, the boss or even working in, in career. So even when I was at JP, I had similar flexibility, right? Where it is just those things are, you know, to me, it's like, what's the point of making money or being successful if I still can't make the time for those things like my dad yeah. could have, couldn't have, right? I feel like, you know, the only thing that my dad told me this when I was 10 years old, it's like a big part of my whole life. The only responsibility is the evolution of the family. Like hmm. what makes you successful? Like, so you talked about us having, and we were not wealthy by any means, right? Working class to then later in life, I'd say middle-class family. And he talked about how we had a thousand times more money and more opportunity than his dad was able to give him and resources. And he talked about, you know, Andre, you know, one day you're going to have kids on your own. And what matters if you're successful is not necessarily how much money you make or how popular you are, whatever. It's the evolution of the family. And the biggest part of that is what opportunity can you give your children? You know what I mean? And so I have literally, that has been kind of my guiding light in life period. Like I take it very, very seriously. I've had that conversation with my kids. And so I think part of that evolution is the ability to spend more time and, and, and soak in those extracurricular events. So it's, you know, it's just like a ingrained in everything for me. Yeah. Love it. That's tremendous advice from your family, your dad. What advice could you pass on to folks coming into the industry? You've been able to see a lot of different things. What advice would you give to others moving into the industry? 
I don't know that it's unique to the advertising technology industry, or I think it's just, I, I think it could probably be better just for starting a company or a startup. It doesn't really matter the, the vertical. You got to really live it, man. You got to really, really enjoy it, I think, to put the full effort in. Before we even went out to raise capital, the whole first year, my co-founder and I pretty much did research. I mean, we were dabbling in little things, but it was, I read every white paper of every company in the space. I read every interview that an exec did at a company that we, I, I just soaked up everything, every opinion that everybody had. And I got to be, I think, pretty knowledgeable, but I also got to really be excited about what I was doing. And that's what gave me the confidence. Look, I was just starting to make real serious money when I left JP. And I had, you know, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. It was honestly stupid. It was honestly this one of the difference between being called like a genius or like this great guy and being an idiot is whether you're successful or not. Because the decision making is not that much different, right? Because if I yeah. didn't, if Chiraptic wasn't successful, then me leaving a position that most people, you know, would have killed to, to be in, particularly at my age and where, where I was to go start a company would be literally just stupid, right? All my financial licenses lapped, I lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of book of business that I was, I mean, it, it, you know, there's no going back, right? But all of a sudden now people, oh man, that was such a, a wise decision. But at the time, if I look at it based off of maybe how much I had saved up, what the earning potential was that I was giving up, the young kids, it was literally a stupid decision. But I think you got to have the conviction and belief in yourself to do things that maybe aren't completely rational on paper to do. And so I think the only way you can do that, and it doesn't matter the industry, is if you do your homework so you know what you're getting into. Yeah, and, and can make an educated decision. And then you have to, I think, have a ton of self-confidence. And I believe that self-confidence oftentimes comes from education and exposure and the, the people around you. Like, I feel like my dad trained me to be who I am today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember, you know, we're just walking down the street or at the doctor's office, the person waiting in line, like, oh, this is such and such, you know, it's a black guy. Like, he's a lawyer. He started law at Howard, or you see that we would drive around to like, you know, this is when we live in the Bronx. I remember driving up to Mount Vernon to Westchester and be like, oh, that's Felicia Rashad and Rashad, Ahmad Rashad's house, beautiful house and stuff like that. And it was all about just making me see what was tangible and possible. And that this, this mentality of what could be. And I didn't realize it at the time, right? Yeah. But looking back at it. So by the time I'm 20 something years old, my expectations of what was possible in life were here, like just through the roof. And then I had an education, I had a, a strong network and then just that arrogance. And then the fact that I did the work. And so my only advice to people is like, you know, you, what Jesse Jackson says, if you can um, conceive it, you can achieve it. Is that was his big thing, rainbow push back in the eighties. Right. And I think a lot of that is why exposure and opportunity of all the things we've been talking about, Right. Are what's needed for people to really go start a business. And that can come from your family ingraining that too. That can be self-motivated. That can be institutionalized with giving people exposure and opportunity. But to me, that's the best thing. There's no, I'm not, I'm nothing spectacular, right? I'm no different. I know so many people that are more intelligent than me that I grew up with in the Bronx that never had maybe the guidance from their parents that I had. I yeah. know people that were better athletes than me 
that. I played D1 sports. I got recruited by a lot of schools. I know people that were always better than me on the playground, but they weren't maybe in school to have the exposure. And so it's not just about the talent or even the work ethic. A lot of it is what you're exposed to and who you know and what you think is possible for yourself. Um, right. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and also, too, I mean, you know, if you're going to place a bet, place it on yourself and, and you, you place the big bet on yourself, too, as well. Well, if you don't believe in yourself, I don't, you know, why should anybody else believe in you? Yeah. Um, you know, my co-founder and I, I mean, the whole first, a while, two years of the company, for the most part, was self-funded. Even after we raised capital to stretch our first capital, even after to stretch to stretch that first capital, we only paid the employees. We didn't pay ourselves mm. for quite some time. So there's a lot. You got to really, really <laughs> believe that that pot at the end of the rainbow is going to be going uh, yeah. to be huge or else you just you could never make those type of calls and types of decisions. And so I've had other founders. I've done a little bit of my wife and a little bit of angel investing, but not like a ton yet. And I've had people ask, and you know, one person that I was talking to. I was like, yeah, you know, I want to raise capital and we're thinking, raise some capital this year and maybe like a year or two, go full time, quit my I'm like, wait a minute. If I'm giving you money, you better be full time now. <laughs> like there's no like hedging your bets, working on another thing. Like I would have loved to stay working at JP Morgan, making, you know, money for a little bit longer until but I'm like, if you don't believe in going all in, why the hell should well, I someone else? You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's a, a big, that's just, just like a big thing. I think people got to show that they believe in themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's just go back to track and field, right? 100 yard dash, you're not going to run half speed, right? Like you got to yeah. put all your effort into it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that that's, that's my MO. Yeah. One fun question I love asking every guest we have on the podcast is, Give me three apps on your phone that you regularly use and you can't name email, calendar, or text. Uh, Instagram. <laughs> I use Instagram a lot. I actually just looked at this. So you go on the, on the iPhone, you can see your usage time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Instagram was high up there. YouTube was high up there, which is both professionally and pleasure-wise because I, I watch, I still watch a lot of webinars and stuff from other companies and just, you know, like to you know, stay, stay abreast of thing. And then one that I don't know if it's in my top three, but it's definitely up there. I look at Trulia a lot. I look to just look at houses and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, houses that I cannot afford. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I just like to see, you know, how's, how's the people making crazy, crazy money living and just look, I find this motivational. I remember everything in life was relative. So, you yeah. know, a house like I live in now or car to drive, stuff like that would have been as an 18 year old, 16 year old, 15 year old would have been yeah. like, Oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? Like you've made it like life is thing, <laughs> but where you're at in your late thirties, you're like, well, no, this is, it is what it is. Like I'm looking at that next level. So I look at some of these crazy absurd houses that even if I sold true optic for tons of money, I probably still can afford. It. I'm talking like the absurd <laughs> mansions, but it's like a hobby. I like just looking at it. Nice. Nice. Laundry. Thanks for hanging out with us, man. It's been a lot of fun. For a lot of our listeners and, and viewers, they like to reach out and sort of stay in touch. What are some ways that our audience can find you? I'm pretty active on Instagram, but I have a private account, so you got to request me because, you know, pictures of kids and stuff. I'm not a big public guy. LinkedIn. Listen, I've closed seven-figure deals from cold outreach on LinkedIn. So I'm not too good to, to take a cold email from anybody <laughs> because I've sent them out myself and it's been life-changing so linkedin is is a great way 
as well. But I'm pretty accessible. Great. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you're looking for more audio and video, just search for Minority Report Podcast and uh, look for the logo. Thanks again for joining us, Andre. Have a good one. I appreciate you having me.